the worship itself, reading first of all from Luke chapter 8, Gospel of Luke chapter 8, and beginning at verse 26. Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding near, nearby on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. We pray God will follow with his blessing our reading of that portion of his word. Let's now engage in prayer. Let's join together in prayer. Almighty God, our gracious God and Father in heaven, we do come before you today as one who is so worthy to be praised and magnified because you are God and because you are perfect and because you have created us in order that we might worship you. And so, Lord, help us to draw near to you today as we come depending upon your Holy Spirit and as we come upon the ground of the merits of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We come before you, Lord, with a desire to worship you and to lift up your name in praise and to come to benefit from your word as we find it in our possession as, as we use it and read it and learn from its teaching. Well, we thank you today, O Lord, that you are God, that it is to you that we owe our allegiance entirely, and that you are the one who has shown us your worthiness to be feared and praised and to be served. We thank you, Lord, that you have planted that desire within us to worship you, to draw near to you at this time. We know, Lord, that it is natural for us as human beings 
to have our hearts directed to the adoration of things beyond ourselves. And yet we need that that is directed in the right way by your Spirit. And through your own work of bringing us to know you, and through being born again of your Spirit, we come to find, Lord, the inclination of our hearts directed to you exclusively. As we come together today, we recognize this. We pray, O Lord God, that as we acknowledge you as our God and as our King, that you would draw near to us and show us that you are our God and assure us of your presence, of your interest in us, Lord our God. We pray that you would grant us blessing as we approach you to confess our sins. Lord, we know that each day we live, we need to confess our sin to you, and yet we find ourselves, O Lord, at times so neglectful even of these basic things. We pray that as we come today to another Lord's Day, another day that reminds us of your own triumph over death, we pray that you would help us to recover our focus once again as we come to direct our minds to your worship. We pray that you would grant us, Lord, the assurance that all who have come to trust in you are truly blessed, that you have indeed covered their sins from your sight, and give us, Lord, we pray today, our intense desire to be amongst them, to know that we belong to these blessed people whose God is the Lord. And, uh, Lord, we pray today as we come in your word to be confronted with your authority and with your power, even over the world of wicked spirits. Enable us, Lord, we pray, to know our own heart directed by you. We pray today that you would bless us as a congregation as we come once again to Uh, Think about our conditions in the world and about our situation in it. Lord, we ask today that as we find ourselves in a measure of recovery and progress from this uh, COVID pandemic, we pray, O Lord, that we may have our trust in you even made stronger and uh, made uh, something that we will increasingly value. We ask, Lord, that we may recognize our need of you, even though there is much to give thanks for in the way of human ability in producing vaccines, in uh, medical care and expertise. Yet, Lord, it is in you that we live and move and have our being. We do pray as a society of human beings, as a nation, uh, that you would deliver us from any sense of self-achievement as we come, uh, Lord, to be delivered from this uh, virus. You reminded your people of Israel long ago as they stepped onto the borders of the promised land that when they came into that land and had uh, come to inhabit um, crops and houses and lands that they had not themselves produced, that they should be careful, they should not say, by the strength of their own hand that they had done this. And Lord, we pray that that may be true of us too as we find ourselves Uh, In this situation today, help us, we pray, to realize that all that we have that is good is from you, that all the ability that we require uh, comes from you as well. And we pray that you'd bless those in government over us at this time. Continue to bless them and to guide them, Lord, through these difficult times. And in Scotland, as we approach another time of national election, O Lord, give us to be thankful for the freedom we have to elect a government over us. And give us wisdom to discern as we cast our votes as to what that vote should be and who it should be for. 
And we ask, O Lord, that you would direct us by the principles of your word as we do this. We know that, Lord, we live in difficult times. So many, if not all, of our major political parties are themselves uh, given to to, uh, commend practices and ways of life that are not in accordance with your word. And Lord, we pray in such times that you would, by your Spirit, direct us as a people. We ask your blessing today for those who are ill. Remember them, we pray. And those who are recovering from illness, whether it be COVID or other illnesses, bless them, we pray. And give us those that we know ourselves, that they may know uh, of your own strengthening at this time. Uh, We pray for uh, those we know in particular at this time have had difficulties of health in recent times. And we pray that you bless our elder, Dolly Angus, as he recovers from surgery. Uh, we pray that you would bless him and Anne and the family and ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to draw near to him and strengthen him and grant him recovery, Lord, in these days ahead. Uh, bring him onwards, we pray, and to, to progress in his health. We ask for all others who are have been laid aside for some time, Lord, of our office bearers and of the uh, membership of the congregation for homes and families that we know have had such difficulties in recent times. Bless them, we pray, as well as all those who have in recent times experienced death and bereavement in their midst. Lord, comfort them, we pray, and grant them your own strengthening. Uh, We pray for Uh, those in these past days, Lord, who have been involved in road traffic accidents. We pray for Chriselle and Stephen, asking that you would bless them at this time and comfort them. We give thanks that their injuries are not serious, and we pray that you would uh, bless them with calmness of spirit and with the knowledge of your own strengthening and help for them at this time. And so we ask that you would continue with us now here uh, and uh, grant that as we turn to your word, that you would bless us and our children and our families and all that we have that we love in this world. Grant us, Lord, we pray, eh, the blessing of your Spirit and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, we're to children now, uh, as usual, at this point in the service. Um, We've been looking for the last uh, while at Jesus and some of the things concerned with Jesus. And last time we looked at began to to ask, what did Peter think of Jesus? And we're going to follow that for a few weeks, God willing, looking at what some uh, of the apostles, especially and disciples, thought about Jesus, um, as they actually tell us in passages in the Bible. And today I want you to look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Because there uh, Peter speaks about Jesus uh, in a very special way. Uh, 11, verse 11, we can read from verse 11, uh, where Peter is saying to those that he's preaching to, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Especially the words of verse 12. Now, I'm sure you've all done the kind of puzzle where you have a page like a maze and there's all these lines and little boxes and lines across the way. Um, So you have to work your way from different starting points and you need to get to where you come out from that maze because there's only one way out and there's only one way that leads from where you start to the exit point where you come out 
of the maze. And you can start by going in uh, a way that you think is going to get you to the exit point, to the place where you leave, and all of a sudden you come across a line across your path, and you realize, well, that's not the way out, so you go back to another starting point, and you try and make your way through from there. You all know that sort of puzzle, I'm sure. Well, Peter is here actually saying there is only one way that leads us to God and to salvation. And that way is the person of Jesus himself. Jesus especially in his death and resurrection is what he's been preaching about. And he's now saying to those that he's listening to, this is salvation. There is salvation in no one else. But in this Jesus there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter lived in a world where many people followed all kinds of idols, false gods, different kinds of religions, and the world was then full of idolatry, as the Bible calls it, people worshipping idols that weren't gods at all, but that they thought of as their gods. That's the kind of world that Peter was preaching in as he spoke these words to these people. There is no way to God, there is no true God, but the God that Jesus revealed in his life, the God the Bible speaks about. And that's why he's saying here there is only one way to God. Now, as children and as adults, we live in a world today where many people will say to us, uh, you'll come across the view that says, it doesn't really matter who or what your God is, it all comes to pretty much the same thing. And whether your God is of um, a religion that's other than Christianity doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, all roads, as long as you're sincere, as long as your religion is something that you follow sincerely with your own heart, then everything will be okay. Well, the Bible is saying to us, that is simply not true. That is a lie. And Peter is here saying, this is the only way of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Through him, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's why for you today and for me, it's so important that we're following Jesus, that we're convinced of Jesus as God's way to eternal life. That's why he came into the world. That's why God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world. That's why Jesus died. That's why he gave himself to the death of the cross. That's why he rose again from the dead. Because that's salvation for us. To provide salvation for us. And really that's why this is exactly the same as Jesus himself taught. Because you remember in John chapter 14 that he said uh, about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So anyone who suggests to you, there are ways to God other than Jesus. There are ways to be saved, to have your sins forgiven other than Jesus. You can say to them, well, that's not what my Bible is teaching. Because I believe that this, as Peter said, as Peter's view of Jesus, as Peter thought this about Jesus, this remains to be true for all time. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I hope 
the more you go through your Sunday school classes, the more you go through life, the more you'll come to experience Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. A lady called Corrie Ten Boom lived during the time of the Second World War, and she had to go to a concentration camp under the cruelty of the Nazis. And one of the things she said, she wrote a lot of very, very precious things. You'll find a lot of her books still available. They're easy to read. Uh, and one of the things she said was, I only realized that Christ was all I needed when Christ was all I had. I only realized that Christ was all I needed. In that concentration camp, she had nothing else. Cruelty, starvation. And then she said, I only, it's then I realized, because all I had was Christ to depend on, that that's really all I needed. And that's what Peter is really saying too, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now if we turn now to Luke chapter 8, the passage we read together a short time ago from verse 26. I want to look at this passage as we follow through with another study of the miracles of Jesus. Um, we've already looked at 11 of those previously, so this is the 12th one. And uh, again, it's quite different in its own way to those we've seen already, although there are others like this as well, because it has to do with the casting out of demons. And most people regard these as miracles that Jesus performed, especially um, when it's obvious that no one else could do this but himself in the way that he did it, at least. And it was a very important feature of Christ's ministry um, that he was seen to defeat the devil and to defeat the works of darkness. Uh, and Jesus demonstrated that a number of times. If you turn to chapter 11, for example, and verse 14, you find that passage there that um, Jesus, having cast out a demon, um, when, when he had done that, some of those around said, he casts out demons, this is at verse 15 of chapter 11, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and that's another name for the devil, while others, to test him, now kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, and this is the verse, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's a picture there that Jesus is using of himself, as it were, coming into the devil's house, 
the devil's um, control of human beings. The devil's power to keep people in blindness, spiritually and morally. And Jesus is saying, this is why I've come into the world, so that I can actually plunder the devil and his household. And what he's doing by casting out demons, as we'll see in the passage today, is demonstrating that that is really what he's about. It's a very important feature of Jesus and his ministry as to what he's come to do. And it's by his death and resurrection especially that he comes to actually crush the devil and overcome him and gain victory over him, as some other passages in the Bible tell us. So we shouldn't be surprised when we come to a passage like this and see the vehemence with which demons, in this case the demons as they had been living in this man who was called Legion because of that, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that there's such a vehement opposition on their part to Jesus. That you find such an intensification, it seems, of demonic activity in the days when Jesus ministered on earth. It stands to reason that the the demons, as we see from this passage, knew Jesus and knew something of what he was about. And therefore, there's an intensified effort on their part to resist him. And to stand in the way of that ministry of Christ as he's bringing salvation into being for sinful people like you and I. And you bear that in mind as you come to follow this passage now as we look at it uh, very briefly. First of all, let's look at how Jesus sends out demons from this man called Legion. Now, the description of the man is uh, very detailed. And that itself is very deliberate on the part of, of Luke and also the other gospel writers who refer to this. It's a very extreme case Uh, And it's described in such detail deliberately. Look at verse 27 there, for example, um, where he says that this man had stepped out uh, against uh, Jesus. Uh, For a long time he had worn worn no clothes, went about without clothes. He had not lived in the house but among the tombs. That area was an area when there were little caves, as used to be the case then. They were used as as tombs or sepulchres. This man was living in that area. And then verse 29, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of this man and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And then verse 30, uh, where Jesus asked him his name, he said, Legion, for many demons had entered into him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now that shows you, all of these details shows you the extremity of this man's case and this man's condition. He had these demons living in him. They had come to inhabit him and that had driven him to this madness, to this kind of, um, this kind of uncontrollable madness by which he went about living his life. And bear in mind that this would have been terrifying to this community because this was an area where they'd have to go and bury the remains of loved ones who had passed away. And here was this man, as soon as anybody went in, like Jesus and his disciples here, into this area, he would step out and challenge them. Just imagine the fear that that would cause in people in that community meeting this man, absolutely terrified of this man. Not only that, but he was absolutely uncontrollable as far as human control was concerned 
because he had been bound with chains and shackles and he had such extreme, uh, 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 extreme strength that he would just break these chains or ropes, whatever he was bound with, and just escape. They found it impossible to control him. And that's why verse 35 there shows something absolutely remarkable. Because they came and found when Jesus had dealt with him and cast out the demons. They came and found this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. What a wonderful contrast to the previous verses describing him in his demon-controlled circumstances. And again it presents us with the authority and the ability of Jesus the authority to deal with the kingdom of darkness, with the powers of darkness, with Satan and Satan's devils, and with people who have had this kind of problem as they were there certainly in his day. Here's the authority and the ability of Jesus. And of course one of Luke's main concerns is to ask and answer this question, who is this man? We'll see it in a moment when they come to confess Jesus as to who he is. All the way through Luke's Gospel, I think we've mentioned this a number of times, but the question arises at various stages throughout Luke's Gospel. That's one of the advantages of just reading the Gospel of Luke or any other book of the Bible from beginning to end. And you'll find that these questions, this question arises, who is this man? It's in the previous part of the chapter here indeed, at verse 25. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Well, here is the next passage. Even the devils obey him. Even the demons and a man like Legion who is uncontrollable in human terms. But he's met more than his match in Jesus. Whatever our human condition is, however deeply steeped in sin, however unable to release ourselves from the shackles of sin. He is the power and the authority that can do that for us. And there's an instant recognition by these demons of Jesus. It's very difficult really to sometimes work out who's speaking, isn't it, in the passage? Because sometimes it's the man himself, the human being, that's called legion, that's speaking. And other times it's actually the devils that answer Jesus, the demons uh, that answer Jesus. So there's this, this, this awful um, contorted condition of this man where he has, uh, because he's got these demons living within him, sometimes he speaks himself, sometimes it's the demons. It just tells you the terrible condition that he was in. And here is, he meets with Jesus and this is what the confession is. When he saw Jesus, he cried and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. See, there's the recognition instantly by demons as to who Jesus is. 
That's one of the, the sad emphases that you find in the Gospels and Luke and other Gospels as well, and indeed throughout the Acts of the Apostles, as the church makes progress, as the Gospel makes progress into human society, into pagan society, that the demons recognize who Jesus is, and human beings are not prepared to accept him for who he is. They're not prepared to accept this is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. They're not prepared to accept his ministry for what it is. That he has come to release people from the shackles of sin, from the guilt of sin. And yet, these demons, they know who he is. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And you can see the two requests that he makes, or that they make in verse um, 28 there, and also verse 31, um, uh, where he says, I beg you, do not torment me. And he begs them, uh, begs, they beg him not to uh, command them to depart into the abyss, which is really another name for the pit. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. The pit, the abyss, is the, 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 the eternal prison, if you like, for demons in which they're held under God's judgment. And here, here are these demons saying, Please don't send us into the abyss. You see, there's the telling thing. There's the, the solemn thing that demons know what's coming to them. They know the future. They know God's judgment. They know what's actually in, in store for them. And yet human beings are not prepared, uh, as they hear the gospel, to believe there's such a thing as hell. To believe there's such a thing as a lost eternity. To believe that there's something beyond this present world. The very thing the Bible speaks about. That the heaven for God's people, for those who trust in Christ, and the hell for those who are not prepared to do that. The demons believe that. As James puts it in his epistle, the devils believe and tremble. They know the truth. Though they don't comply with the truth. And what a great privilege you have today and I have today that Jesus has given us the truth and a heart to comply with the truth and a faith to believe in himself as the one who has authority over all things. So uh, they actually ask him, instead of going into the abyss, they want uh, to enter those uh, pigs, the herd of pigs that was feeding nearby on the hillside. So he gave them permission, and they came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, there are no doubt there are problems in our understanding of how Jesus would accommodate such a thing, but do remember this, that when he gave them permission, when the demons asked permission, and you see, that's another way of acknowledging um, their sense of Christ's authority over them. That he could command what he willed. And they say to him, please don't send us into the abyss. Send us into that herd. Let us, let us go into that herd of pigs. So he gave them permission. That doesn't mean that Jesus made them do this. That doesn't mean that Jesus is to blame for the destruction of that herd of pigs. The demons are. Uh, if somebody gives me permission to drive their car and I take it and I have an accident with it, the people whose car it is, the person whose car it is, has not made me drive it, is not responsible for what's happened. They've simply given me permission. And Jesus gave them permission. And having given them permission, this is what they set about doing. 
So it's not a matter of Christ being to blame. It's simply that he gave permission to them to do this, and that's what they did. He answered their request. And that's what happened. And that's the way that Jesus sends out demons from the man called Legion. Secondly, let's look at uh, the way Jesus sends out the man who was Legion as his missionary. Because this is really a wonderful emphasis in the story, in the account that you have here of this incident. This man began as Legion, the demon-possessed man whose name was Legion. When Jesus asked him his name, this is what he actually said, my name is Legion. And that really is a word that was used for a whole a group of Roman soldiers, whether it means that as many as that were in him, we don't know, a thousand soldiers, a legion. Um, but anyway, there were many demons that entered into him, as it says. And so that's why he said, legion is my name. That's how he began the day. He began the day as this man, legion, inhabited by all these devils and actually controlled by them. He ended the day as Christ's missionary to his own town, to his own territory. See what a wonderful emphasis that is? It doesn't matter how you begin the day, that's not what counts. It's how you end it that really counts. It doesn't matter what sort of condition we've come to church in today, as long as Christ has come into our life and changed our life, that's really what matters. And that's really what's important from the passage is that this man has been changed by Jesus from the state that he was in, from the condition he was in, to one that was, as we'll see, so subservient to Jesus and serving Jesus as someone uh, uh, to bring the message of what had happened to him to the world around him. Now notice, first of all, his complete restoration. Because when Jesus cast these demons out of him, the herdsmen saw then what happened to the pigs. So they came, verse 35, to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, as I said at the beginning, that's a deliberate contrast, a wonderful contrast with the description of the man earlier on in the passage. Look at these three features of his restored condition as Jesus changed him, as Jesus cured him, as Jesus healed him. He's first of all clothed, such a contrast to earlier, because he'd been going about without any clothes, a sign of his madness. He insisted on going about naked among the tombs. That's how people knew him as. That's what they actually saw him as. But he's now clothed. And each of these details, the clothing being at Jesus' feet and being in his right mind, has a spiritual as well as a literal meaning, undoubtedly. Because when when you find him here clothed, that Jesus had uh, provided him with clothes, wherever the clothes came from, it doesn't matter, but it's just a contrast to what he was earlier. And clothing is always used in the Bible um, to describe the way that God provides us with righteousness, clothing us with that which we don't have of ourselves. And, of course, the most brilliant um, parable that illustrates that for us is the parable of, of um, the prodigal son, as we normally refer to it in Luke's Gospel and chapter 15. You remember there yourself, um, yourselves how he came back home after a long time, 
uh, having wasted his life and in dire need. And he came and he wanted to confess to his father. He wasn't worthy of uh, being called a son anymore, but uh, he wanted just to be one of the hired servants. And his father said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Because here is the restoration of dignity. The restoration of dignity beyond and above what he had been in his rags and in his filth before. And that's really what's illustrated with this man legion as well. He's no longer going about in his shame, in a shameful way, in the tombs, in his nakedness. He has now come to be clothed. He has dignity. He has dignity restored to him. That's what Jesus is about. And sadly, until we come to have our eyes, our, our own eyes opened, we don't realize that we lack that dignity. You know, some people will tell you, I've got dignity because I'm quite an able human being. God has given me an intellectual capacity. He's given me much uh, in the way of ability that way and in other ways. But spiritually, we are actually naked before God. In our sin and in our lostness, we have a shamefulness before God that we're not ashamed of until we come to see our sin for what it is. And then when God shows us our sin and we realize our spiritual nakedness and our guilt before God, then we come to be ashamed of it. Then we come to realize I'm nothing like what I should be in the presence of God. I want to be clothed. I want to have my nakedness covered. I no longer want to be guilty and filthy before God, and naked before the one who sees into my heart. And so one of your elements in prayer, when you come to pray earnestly and sincerely to God for your sin to be forgiven, it really amounts to this, Lord, clothe me, cover my shame. And if only, if only the gospel were more widely received in our society today, there would be far more of a cry of, I'm ashamed of myself. When all too often, sadly, it's the very opposite. It's pride and sinfulness. Pride in being arrogant against God. Pride in pushing God aside. Pride in doing without the Bible and insisting on our own way. And when God comes and shows us what we are, that pride goes we fall down like this man before Jesus and we want to be clothed and as we express our shame and so we express our need of Jesus to clothe us, to cover us, to remove our exposure of the defilement of our sin in his forgiveness. And the second thing, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. What a contrast to previously. You couldn't actually control him even by tying him up with chains or putting him under guard. He would break that and uh, escape. And he doesn't want to escape. He's completely different in his mindset. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. What does that tell you? It tells you if you go to chapter 10 that that's the position of a disciple. Someone who wants to learn from Jesus. Someone who wants to follow Jesus. As Mary in chapter 10 is described as sitting at the feet of Jesus when Martha was busy in the kitchen. Sitting at the feet of Jesus means I'm now in the position of a learner. I've become his pupil. I want to be controlled by him. I want to be directed by him. I want him to teach me. I want him to feed my mind and direct my heart 
and my life. That's what this man has become. And that's the powerful emphasis of this account, of this miracle of Jesus. Taking someone who was in that desperate state, and here he is in the opposite state, clothed and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that what we're doing today? Isn't that why we're here today? Isn't that why you're watching online today and participating in the service of worship from wherever you are in the world, for which we're thankful? But that's what we're about. We want to sit at the feet of Jesus. We're here to learn from Jesus, not just about him, but from him through his truth. And we've come to realize whatever teaching is out there in the world and however great it may be and however beneficial it may be and of whatever long standing it may be throughout the course of history and however many millions of people may follow it, this is the teaching that I need. This is the Jesus that I need. This is where I need to be. This is where my life needs to be positioned at the feet of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. And the more you sit at his feet, the more you learn of him, the more you realize your need of him, the more you realize how useless are those other philosophies that reject Christ, that put Christ aside. How empty is our own human wisdom compared to what we get sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus Thirdly, he's in his right mind. And maybe above all, that's really what strikes you as such a contrast to the man legion that he was. He is in his right mind. He wasn't in his right mind. It's obvious from the way he lived. But Jesus has restored him so that he's now in his right. He's no longer a madman. He's no longer um, controlled by these demons and beset with madness from day to day, he is now in his right mind. That's actually what Jesus does. Spiritually, that's what we have restored. Romans chapter 8, you remember in Romans chapter 8 that uh, uh, Paul often deals with the mind and our human life, how important the mind is, the mind and the condition of the mind, uh, that's a spiritual thing, of course, as it controls your outlook and your way of life. Well, in Romans chapter 8, this is what you find um, uh, Paul writing to the Romans in verse 5, uh, where you find him saying, For those who live according to the flesh, that's the sinful way of life, set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the, on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And in some ways I prefer the older translation to that passage, which speaks about the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, and the spiritual mind. The carnal mind is enmity against God. The spiritual mind, the mind of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God, is life and peace. That is what Jesus gives. That is what Jesus brings to us when we come to have him at the center of our life. When all other controlling factors in our life are rejected by him, and he takes their place and sits on the throne of our hearts. That's what happens. Your life is then directed as it should be in the right way. 
And here is a man who is now in his right mind. He has come to be transformed by Jesus. Now the time has gone on. We have to push through. There is so much in this that that, um, we need to go through just briefly. But there is an unfortunate reaction to what has happened on the part of the people. Um, All the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. There was a, a great fear as to what had happened. Now that's, that's understandable and that's really natural in a sense because when human beings come up against something that you call supernatural, whether it's in the world of evil or in the divine sense of the supernatural, there's obviously going to be a sense of fear. When you really come in, realis- in, in a realistic way against that and confront that, whether it's God or whether it's something of the evil world, there's inevitably a sense of fear. There's something there that's bigger than myself. Something there that's, that I know I can't control. And so they were filled with fear because they had come to be confronted by this supernatural, by this power bigger than themselves. But unfortunately what they made of that was instead of coming to be like, like Legion sitting at the feet of Jesus, they came to Jesus and begged him. They asked him to depart from them. So he got into the boat and returned. Now just imagine what that's saying. The Jesus, the person, who had done such a remarkable thing as this to this man called Legion, would you not think that these people would say, please don't leave us, please deal with us, please stay with us. It's the opposite. They're concerned that he leave them, that he go away, that they no longer have this supernatural power, this this, uh, power that's bigger than themselves amongst them. And you know, sometimes people think like that about God. Unfortunately, people think, well, I, I, I don't really want to go near that. I don't want to go near the whole idea of coming to be converted. I don't want to really come into that sort of contact with the divine, with the supernatural. Uh, something that makes me afraid, I'm really hesitant about. I'd rather live without it. I'd rather just push it away. And I hope you're not like that today, anyone here or anyone watching, because that's really death. That's the way of death. And what you find from the passage is this emphasis. Don't push Jesus away from you. Don't say it's better for you if he keeps himself at a distance. Don't think that your life is going to be improved if you actually don't have Jesus close to you. It's the opposite that's true. Look at this man. Look at where he is. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he's doing. He's clothed, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. And here are these other people who have seen and experienced this and they're saying, please go away from us. Leave us. Don't stay here. That's the kind of world we live in, isn't it? When you, you uh, try and raise your voice for Jesus' sake and to do what this man actually came to do, as we'll see, to speak about God and what great things God has done. And you very often say, well, well, that's okay for you, but I don't want any of that. That just makes me afraid. I'd rather do without that. Take your Jesus away from here. Take your God away from here. Uh, Take God out of public life. Take Jesus out of public life. Take the law of God out of public life. It doesn't belong there, people tell us. 
Just leave us to follow what's best in terms of human ability and human wisdom and human ingenuity. Well, here's the Bible telling us that that's a, that's a way of disaster. That's the way of, of death. That's the way of a downward spiral into further ungodliness. And here is uh, the point that's made there. Please don't send Jesus away. Don't ask him to go to a distance from your life. And don't be content even now if you know that there's in a measure something of a relationship between yourself and the Lord. Don't think that it's best for you just leaving it at that without going any further. Go to him. Ask him. Please bring me nearer to you. Please bring me to sit at your feet. Please teach me. Please lead me. Please give me a greater relish for your word. Please help me to meet with your people, to enjoy worship. Everything that's associated with being close to Christ. That's where we need to be. And this is why uh, the final point is, this man that was legion, and is no longer legion because the devils have gone, and he begged him, he begged Jesus that he might remain with him. And again, what a contrast to the people who wanted Jesus out of the way and Jesus to leave their district. This man is saying to Jesus, please keep me with you. I want to stay with you. I want to follow you. I want to be where you are. And really that's itself something that uh, you recognize when God has changed your life, when Christ has come into your life, that's exactly what you want. You want to be with him. You want to actually be where he is. You're so taken up with him. But then Jesus refused here uh, to have him stay with him physically, that is, of course, to follow him as one of the disciples or uh, people that followed in the crowd of those who followed Jesus. That's what this man wanted to do. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. If Jesus had wanted simply to make a kind of trophy of this man and thereby present himself as a very successful person or a very successful uh, uh, rabbi, he would have allowed this man to follow him. But that's not what Jesus is about. He's not there for his own reputation. He's there for this man and other people's well-being and good. So what does he do? He makes a missionary of him. He sends him to his own home to declare how much God had done for him. So he went away. Here is the man who was a legion proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see the contrast to when he started the day? He started the day as a madman. He ends the day as a missionary. That's what Jesus can do. And that's what he did for this man. That's the remarkable authority and power of Jesus. This wonderful person in whom we have the salvation. He ends the day no longer as legion but as Christ's missionary. And isn't that really just what God is saying of ourselves too? Or to ourselves? All of you today who know Jesus as your saviour. This is effectively what he's saying to you. It doesn't matter if you're young or up in years or middle-aged or old. It doesn't matter. This is really what Jesus is saying to us today, to me and to you. 
Return to your home. Return to where you live. And wherever you are each day as it goes by, tell what great thing God has done for you. If he's changed your life, don't keep it secret. Don't keep it something hidden from others. Tell what things God has done for you. And you know, whatever we say about this pandemic, one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that it has given us as Christians a greater opportunity probably than any other time in our lifetime to present Jesus to the world. To say to the world out there, let me tell you what this man has done for me and what he can do for you. Let me tell you how he's changed my life. I just, I just picture in mind, um, as you think of what we're told here, um, just this man actually going back home. Back to his home territory and his own home as well as family. I presume there was a family there. Just imagine what they might have been thinking as they looked down the road and there is legion coming. And first of all at a distance they would probably say, oh no, look who is coming. That's the madman. What are we going to do? Let's just lock the door. And as he comes nearer, they think, is it him? It looks like him, but it doesn't. He doesn't behave like him. And then the nearer he comes, and when he comes to be able to speak with them, he starts talking about what Jesus has done for him. And they realize, well, it is the same person, but he's a changed man altogether. So I need to really think about what he's saying. If this Jesus has done this to this man, I need to really listen. Because there's something remarkable about it that I'd never thought of. You know, that's the world that's waiting out there. And bit by bit, as, this, as these restrictions lift, this is what we have to have in mind, friends. To tell what Jesus has done for us. And how this is the answer, whether it's a pandemic or whatever situation we're in as human beings. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer to our entire human problem. Let's not keep people in the dark about it. Let's tell that world plainly, honestly, humbly. This is what he has done for me. And what he has done for me, he can do for you also. Let's pray. Lord our God, we give thanks that you are the one who changes lives even beyond what we are able to ask or think. And as we come, O oh Lord, to pray about ourselves and about the world in which we live, help us to fix our eyes upon you. And upon the wonder of your own sovereign ability and grace. The wonder of your authority. The wonder of your own mighty power. We bring ourselves to you today, Lord, and ask not only for ourselves that we might increasingly know that change in our lives that you alone bring about. We pray that you would make us a means of bringing change to others in the world in which we live. And grant, Lord, as we have seen a year when the world is so familiar with this pandemic and its destructive power. 
Help us to present the Jesus whose power can change human lives into that which they ought to be. Receive our thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now we're going to conclude by singing in Psalm 31. Uh, We won't be singing again. We don't still have permission to sing in terms of congregational singing. But um, I'll just sing Psalm 31, these verses 3 to 8. In the Sing Psalms version, You are my fortress and my rock. For your name's sake, be my sure guide. We'll sing to tune Heron Gate, verses uh, 3 to 8. You are my fortress and my rock, for your name's sake be my sure guide. Preserve me from the trap that set. You are the refuge where I hide. Redeem me, Lord, O God of truth. My spirit I commit to you. I hate all those who trust false gods. I trust the Lord, for he is true. I will rejoice and take delight in all the love that you have shown for my affliction you have seen to you my soul's distress is known you have not left me to my foe or given me into his hand but you have set my feet within a spacious place where I may stand. Um, after the benediction, please, if you remain seated until those on duty uh, show you through from the door here to my left. Uh, if you remember, please to remain in your um, groupings of bubbles and keep the distance of two metres between you. And when we go outside, please just make your way to your cars or out to the street. And if you use the sanitizer, please, at the top of the shelves as you leave, just sanitize your hands as you're leaving. Let's stand for the benediction now. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.